0: Sermon passage comes from Mark chapter 8. If you have your Bible, I do invite you to open there. I'm going to read a few verses of context leading up into what will appear on the screen. So uh, Mark 8, and I'm going to start reading in verse 22, and we'll read all the way through what's going to appear on the screen, verse 38. Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 22. This is God's holy inspired word, so let's give our attention And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea and Philippi. On the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's ask for God's blessing on his word. Lord God, we ask you now as the king of the universe, as the authority that spoke these words, and Holy Spirit, as you inscribed them, uh, we pray that you would write them now also on our hearts. Lord God, it is our nature, as we're going to consider, to be distracted and lulled, Lord, slowly to sleep uh, by the many delights and things of this world that are distracting. And I pray, Father, that you would awaken us, Lord, cause a spiritual awakening even in our midst as your word is read and preached, Father. We look to you for the effect. And Lord, glorify yourself and bless your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I was raised uh, listening to a song quite a few times as a child uh, called The Devil Went Down to Georgia. It's a story of a a young fiddler who uh, is very, very skilled and the devil uh, strikes upon him and he uh, is willing to strike a deal, the song says, and that deal is that if the two uh, fiddlers, the, the devil and Johnny, can duel, and if uh, Johnny can play the the fiddle better he gets this golden fiddle but if he plays worse and the devil plays better then Johnny will lose his soul and uh, uh, there's many uh, cultural references to this interestingly to trading your soul or to selling your soul many many stories that are written and dramatic uh, things uh, plays and different kinds of songs that are written on this theme And the difficulty for us is that it's never that clear, it's never that obvious that Satan comes to us and sets before us this trade. I'm going to offer you this one thing, this one moment, this one pleasure, and you do this, and then I will take your soul. Satan works very, very slowly and gradually to distract us and confuse us. And Jesus warns us this morning, what would it benefit you if you were to gain the whole world and lose your soul or what can someone give in exchange for their soul the title for my message this morning is is don't neglect your soul and it's prompted by the trip that we just took to boardwalk chapel my prayer this morning is that like a earthquake that has a sudden large jolt uh spiritually in the lives of our youth group there would be aftershocks in the life of our congregation that you would ask uh, the youth group about the time that they had on the boardwalk that they will tell the stories and testimonies of what the Lord did in their lives in New Jersey and that the Lord would work this uh, this emphasis on the the importance of facing eternity of knowing where we are headed and where we're destined and that in doing that we would not trade away temporary pleasures for our souls. Um, 25 high schoolers and eight, uh, 7 leaders uh, spent 8 days in Wildwood, New Jersey. We uh, would go out at nights and pass out pamphlets and initiate conversations with people on the boardwalk. I was trying to do the math and I think we initiated, whether very briefly or longer, maybe a thousand conversations between all of us and the, the staff uh, members. And It was a very simple type of conversation over and over and over again are you ready to face god do you know where you are headed are you confident that you are destined for eternity with god or do you think that you will suffer in hell Forever. If you think about doing that, if you can imagine, and put, your uh, put yourself in the shoes of our youth group, it's a wonderful experience in some sense. It's also kind of terrifying to be thinking about that day after day after day. It had an effect on those, I'm praying, it had an effect on those that we went and spoke to. It certainly had a profound effect on us. And I think sometimes I, I uh, uh, don't take into account how much of an effect uh, this kind of a mission trip has. On us, The questions, as I say, were, are you going to heaven? Do you know that for sure? And, and what is the basis of your confidence that you are headed toward eternal glory? See, our life, your life, my life, was intended for the glory of God, to live eternally in the pleasures of heaven itself. And yet, we, like those on the boardwalk who... We're blissfully enjoying a spectacular summer uh, beach experience. We can be lulled, and I'm encouraging us this morning, not to be lulled by the, the glory of the summer, the glory of the pleasures of what we can experience this summer and forget the eternal call of Christ on our life. Well, the context of our passage this morning, I read it, is a, a kind of interesting healing story. It seems as if Christ messes up a healing in that he partially heals someone, and the text tells us that the man looks out and he sees men, so his, his eyesight is partially restored, but he sees men distorted. He says, I see men walking, but they look like trees. And then Jesus has to sort of do a second take and finish healing the man and i think what mark is doing is he's showing that there is a, a progressive revelation happening in the gospel of mark there's little by little uh, glimpses of where christ is headed and he you know that because of where he goes next he wants to ask them about his identity right after the story of the partial healing who do the people say that i am and then very importantly who do you say that i am And when they say, Peter says on behalf of the disciples, you are the Christ, he says, don't tell anyone. But interestingly then, he starts to just with his disciples explain to them what will be the nature of his messianic kingdom. He's come to initiate a kingdom in this world. He's come to preach and to launch his agenda and kingdom and what will be the nature of that kingdom. Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected, killed, and on the third day rise. And the very one who so boldly said to Jesus, "You are the Christ," attacks the nature of his ministry. He pulled Peter said. The text says Peter pulled Jesus aside and started rebuking him. Absolutely not. That's not how it's going to go. And so we we sense that Peter has this kind of partial sight of the kingdom like the man who was partially healed in his eyesight he can see that jesus is the christ he can't accept yet the nature of the kingdom that christ came to bring but then jesus having pulled just his disciples aside explaining the nature of the kingdom to them now he pulls all of the crowd he he uh, speaks to the whole crowd and he says to them what is our sermon passage this morning? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus is very intentional to protect the message of his sufferings and where he's headed to a cross just with his disciples. But when he comes to the whole crowd, he tells them, all of them, if anyone is going to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after me. So first I want us to consider in our passage the call, the urgent universal call to daily discipleship, which will mean death so that we can live. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it so well, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Notice in the passage all the universal language that Jesus uses. Verse 34, if anyone would come after me, Verse 35, whoever would save his life will lose it. In verses 36 and 37, when he speaks about a man, this is a general way of referring to any person, any person who trades the whole world for his soul is in such a tragic place. And anyone who is embarrassed, who is ashamed of professing Christ, the son will also be ashamed of in the last coming. I think sometimes we think this drastic call to self-denial and to death is for like new Christians maybe. People who are just converted. They're very excited about what they've learned in the gospel. And so those people maybe should be really, really committed to their life as Christians. But then the rest of Christians are sort of different uh, levels of commitment. But notice Jesus says it's absolutely universal. Anyone who's going to follow after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow him. This is not a boot camp that certain Christians are are, uh, screened out of. The stronger Christians can deny themselves, take up their crosses, and follow. It's not Navy SEALs being trained as sort of an elite class of Christians. All Christians are called to forsake the world, to not be distracted by things that would lull us away from Christ, I, the, the quote from uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is, is so important in context, I want to read you a little bit larger of a section. He, he uh, says it so well. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ-suffering which every man must experience is a call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. And then the quote, When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and to die. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer helpfully clarifies that that won't look the same for every Christian. The radical call to self-denial and death to ourselves will look different based on the, the Christian who's being called. He goes on to say, it may be a death like of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world, but it's the same death every time, death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. The Lord calls all of us as Christians to not neglect our souls, to universally forsake the world, the flesh, and the devil, and to walk with our deaths to ourselves, intentionally focusing our way and walking in the way of our Savior. Uh, Luke uh, adds in his statement of this phrase, the word daily, take up your cross daily and follow after me, there are no days off for us in that sense as Christians. There are no uh, vacation days. There's no days where we say this is a day for me to uh, me to do me. I'm going to indulge today and live for myself, and my Savior has no bearing on my life today. It's a daily call that all Christians must forsake the world and follow after Christ. I think uh, the word "let him take up his cross" can sometimes also be uh, confusing, this is actually a command. Uh, he must forsake, renounce, disregard. It's not a multiple choice or an option, but it's an imperative. It's a requirement. Die to ourselves in order to live for Christ. Uh, I'm always very, very struck by the vows that we take when we become members in Christ's church. Uh, the vows as parents, for instance, when we're going to baptize our chil- children. We say that we're going to raise them in the Lord. We're going to pray with and for them, train them in the catechisms and scriptures. But in the fourth membership vow, have you heard this and really pondered what it means? Do you acknowledge Jesus Christ as your sovereign Lord? Do you promise that in reliance on the grace of God, you will serve him with all that is in you, forsake the world, resist the devil, put to death your sinful desires, deeds and desires and lead a godly life. You will serve him with all that is in you. This is a great, massive call for us as Christians. It's not ever done by any of us perfectly without stumbling, but it's an invitation by the Lord to give up our priorities, our plans, and our intentions and to die to ourselves and to follow him well what are some obstacles then second if that's the call of christ on our life what are what are some of the obstacles that jesus presents to us well notice in verse 35 we are very prone towards self-preservation verse 35 whoever would save his life will lose it we're very prone toward self-preservation we're selfish by nature I remember being married, and the few weeks after I was married, I wasn't in any sense really a different person than uh, the one I was before I was married, but suddenly I saw myself in a different light. Uh, My wife would uh, just point certain things out to me, uh, simple things where I was leaving my clothing or what what I was doing with certain patterns of uh, cleanliness and things like that. Uh, And suddenly, the the same person who was living before, right, before I was married, is uh, shown a mirror of themselves, and you see, oh, I'm actually a pretty selfish person. I live, in so many ways, oriented toward myself. If you're a parent, a new parent, uh, you may have seen your own selfishness in the way that you care for your children. At least I saw it in myself. With our first child, I remember the days very, very clearly still where we would pour and pour and pour into caring for our daughter. And uh, at the end of the day, we'd go for a walk. I remember it's super clear this still we'd walk through uh, this uh, wine country that we were living in. We had a little apartment in wine country, this beautiful sunsets. And we would just laugh and laugh so tired, because at the end of the day, we knew we would go to sleep, but it wouldn't really be sleeping time. We'd be woken up many, many times through the night. And the kind of frustration that that would cause in my heart was this, I realized that I'd been living in a kind of transaction with many, many people. If I do things in service toward you, you need to acknowledge it and be thankful and do something toward me. And a little tiny person can do nothing to say thank you to you. They are all take, 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 and you are all give, 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 and there is no acknowledgement. And I saw in my own heart how much of my actions are very, very, selfish. We are very self-preserving by nature. We want to live for ourselves or have other people acknowledge any service that we give. And the best thing, according to Christ, is for us to notice this and to see it and not live to serve ourselves, to preserve our life, but to lay it down. There are 10,000 lessons, like those two tiny lessons that I am uh, sharing with you, there are 10,000 times when God will teach you your own selfish heart and say, don't live to preserve and to serve yourself. Lay down your life for others and lay down your life for me. And I promise you, Jesus is saying, in the forsaking, in the denying, it will not be a true loss. You will actually be gaining by losing Well, a second obstacle that Jesus lays out is our, I'm going to call it our pursuit of enoughness by adding more and more. Our pursuit of enoughness by adding more and more. Verse 36, Jesus says, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? Remember Jesus told a parable where there is a rich man who, Uh, takes in his harvest and it says that the harvest produced plentifully, Luke 12. And he thought to himself, what should I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. And so he said, I will do this. I'll tear down my barns, build larger ones, and then I'll store my grain, my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. The things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What does it benefit us to gain the whole world and to have traded away our souls? And again, I want to bring you back to the first illustration at the beginning of the sermon that that Satan, as he tempts us with anything in this world that would distract us from Christ, he doesn't come a uh, horned and kind of sent sending out an alarm saying this is a satanic attack on you this is a temptation that's peddling away your soul he comes very seductively he comes with deceit remember the one telling jesus that he shouldn't have to suffer and die was his friend peter It's so tricky, right? It's so deceptive. It seems like maybe I should be able to listen to the voice of my friend. And yet Jesus has to say to Peter, get behind me. You are not energized. You're not directed by a focus and a commitment to the things of God. You're so taken by the things of man, the things of this world. Jesus is calling us to look at the scope of our life this morning. Look over your life and consider, what is it all for? What do I want at the end of my life? What can I take with me as I go into eternity? It's the question we were asking people on the boardwalk. What is your confidence in life and in death? Are you ready to face your maker? Or are you lulled to sleep by the pleasures of this world such that you've peddled away eternity for temporary pleasure. Remember the other story of the rich young ruler who seemed externally to have known God's commands, probably memorized so much of the Old Testament, lived according to God's commands, and Jesus puts his finger directly on the one thing that the rich young ruler loved just do one thing, Jesus says. If you're going to love me. Go sell what you have. Come and follow me. And the Lord is not calling us to empty our bank accounts and move to another place. In some sense, it could be easier if that's all he was requiring of us. Everyone needs to pick up tomorrow and we're all going on a trip to Boardwalk Chapel. In some sense, it'd be easier to apply it if it were that kind of physically simple but the Lord calls you in your life now to consider what distractions, what loves in this world are taking me away from a willingness to lay down my life, to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow him. Well, if those were the obstacles, third, I want us to consider the solution, which is that the road to the cross is a road of love. The road to the cross is a road of love. Love. Um, one of the remarkable things about being on the mission trip this year was the joy that our students had in doing something that you probably think of as pretty uncomfortable and in many ways uh, a, a, a disruption to ordinary life. It was a rigorous uh, daily pattern of uh, waking up at this, a certain time and reading scripture for a long period of time, being taught in different things, uh, preparing songs and uh, and different uh, gospel dramas and then presenting them at nights and then going out on the boardwalk. And yet there was this joy that flowed out from our students. Uh, there was a joke that was very telling to me on the mission trip on the way there. We, we prohibit our youth from having cell phones so that they can be engaged with each other and very focused on the, the task that we're doing. And on the way to the, the, uh, the drive to the, the boardwalk, the joke was, uh, let's turn around and go home because we forgot our cell phone, or let's turn around and go home because we forgot our gaming system. Um, and it was a uh, you know, lighthearted way of saying, the things that, are, that I love in some sense are left back at home. But remarkably, on the way back from Boardwalk, the kids were saying to me, let's turn around and go back. We want to go and spend more time at the Boardwalk in New Jersey. Well, what happened Uh, There was a change in the thing that was loved and lovely and worthy in the hearts of our young people, a sense that what they had been doing for those eight days was so valuable that they wanted to keep pursuing it. See, sometimes the call to lay down your life for Christ, to deny yourself, to take up your cross and follow him can seem like this is going to be the end of me. This is a destruction of me. This is not good for me. And the reality for Christians is this is the best thing that could happen to you. Seek first the kingdom, Jesus says, and its righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. As you forsake yourself, as you pursue Christ and his righteousness, he doesn't keep away other gifts. It says he adds them to you, but the focus of what your life is for is suddenly clarified. And you can say, Lord, my whole life is for you, and I don't want to trade away my soul for the passing loves of this world. See, you really can't enjoy any gifts in this world until you have this priority straight. As you love the Lord, as you lay down your life in self-denial, as you lose yourself, the promise is that you won't be losing at all, that you will be gaining in doing that. But for us as Christians, the cross is not the same as it was for Jesus. The cross that Jesus calls you to take up this morning, the whole pattern of your life as a Christian, is not the cross of suffering for your sins. It's a very important difference. Jesus is not telling his disciples in the same way that I will have to go to suffer and die for your sins, you also need to take up a cross and go and die because you're a sinner. The cross for Christ was fundamentally and completely different than the cross that he calls us to. I mean, compare the rich young ruler to Jesus. The rich young ruler saw the temporary wealth of this world and said, this is what I love, and he forsook Christ and would not lay that down. And Jesus, who owns all things, who is the maker of all things, through whom all things were made, took on flesh, and his life was bookended by a manger at the beginning, the poverty of not even being able to be born in a reputable place, And the only exaltation at least in this life for Jesus is being lifted up onto a Roman cross. And Jesus says, this is my joy. This is what I was meant to do. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and then die and on the third day rise. And it is an abundant love that Jesus is directed by, he is motivated by a rich, rich love for his disciples as he does this. First John 4.10 says, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. What will enable you as you wake up tomorrow morning or as you're struggling at 3 p.m. on Wednesday afternoon to actually not betray your Savior and Master and Lord? What will motivate you to actually want to forsake whatever temporary pleasure the Lord is calling you away from? My Savior loved me and gave himself for me. The Father who did not spare his son, his only son, but gave him up for us all, how we who not also together with us Together with him, give us all things. See, the fear that often motivates us to try to live for ourselves, to try to amass whatever we can in this life and live for what we can achieve in this life, the fear that's behind that is, Lord, you're not providing for me, you're not protecting, you're not going to be here for me and with me in this life. And the gospel definitively says all of those fears whispering to you are not true, Titus 3 says that those who were hated by others and always hating others were loved by the Father. Titus 3, verses 4 and 7. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to eternal life. The Lord has loved us abundantly and made you an heir with Jesus, his son. And he tells you, I promise you, as you lay down your life with Christ, as you united to Jesus in his death, as you deny yourself and take up your cross, it will all be worth it because Christ has loved us from before the foundation of the world. The Father has shown us this love and we can say for the cause, for the kingdom, I will walk and follow you and serve you and give up whatever you call me to give up in this life. I can lay down my life daily because before all of that, you loved me so richly. I want to give everything in return. May that be the heart of discipleship. May we not neglect our souls and be empowered to do that by the love that the Father has shown us in his Son. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you, Lord, for the eternal mission that you set Christ on, Lord. We are missionaries, uh, but we're missionaries in a very different sense, Lord. You are the missionary in that you accomplished our salvation. And Lord, your cross was for wicked, adulterous, sinful people. And Lord, I pray for the boldness as Christians to stand with Jesus to be able to turn down the whispering voices of temptation Lord of trading simple everyday pleasures for eternal lasting glory and Lord would you enable us by the power of your spirit to see Lord that nothing given up for your kingdom will ultimately be lost and to see that your love Lord is powerful enough stronger than death and Lord will raise us up And glorify us with Jesus on the last day, Lord. Empower us, Lord, to deny ourselves through these realities. Take up our crosses each day. And follow you because you have loved us, Lord, so abundantly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's rise and sing as we close for the cause. the last word. He speaks over you a blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance on you and give you his peace. Amen.